Welcome to the Mal and Johnny Show. A very special guest today, a long-term friend of mine. He's a, a rugby commentator, he's an after-dinner speaker, he's an all-round good egg. Actually, he looks like an egg as well, thinking about it. Mr Phil Steele, welcome to the programme, Phil. Thank you very much. And thank you for reading the introduction I gave you. <laughs> Actually, I, 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 I well, feel out of place. I'm going to have to shave my head. <laughs> well, well, look, welcome to the show. Now, I was trying to explain, to, obviously, Johnny knows about your career, but it has been, what I mean, like in the background there, what's that shirt behind you in the background there that we can see? Well, that is a, uh, it's a, um, a programme I did for Radio Wales called uh, Three Feathers at 40. When I was 40, back in 2001, I did a I did a, a radio program. Steve Groves was the producer, and it was me at forty years of age going around trying to represent Wales in something, trying to get my three feathers because I was in one of the Wales squads in nineteen eighty three, and uh, I withdrew through injury, and they wouldn't give me my tracksuit and all my all my gear, even though we had to sign for it, put our put our sizes down and everything, and they just signed the agreement with Adidas. So it was all this lovely Adidas kit, you know, but because I actually withdrew from the squad, um, they didn't give me my kit, so. All those years later, uh, for, for my 40th birthday, I did this programme with Steve Groves, uh, going round trying to represent Wales or something. And after the end of the series, he presented me with that uh, with that shirt. Representing Radio Wales. There we are. Well, at least Representing <laughs> Radio Wales, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So at least I represented Wales in something. Fantastic. Yeah. OK, so, right, let, let's, get, let's go back. Um, do we talk about you being a rugby player or a teacher, or is it both at the same time, really? Yeah, both at the same time. Yeah, I suppose um, growing up... Uh, I, I was one of these people who always wanted to play rugby for Wales. You know, that was that was my thing. Growing up in Ely and Cardiff, I grew up in a in a Catholic family uh, in Ely, and I say to people, I'm from the rough part of Ely. Let's call Ely. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't and, Kyra Lane, um, was it? Yeah, it was. It was Kyra. You know, Leglos. Yeah, eighty-one Hill. Ah, I know it. I know Fabulous it. upbringing, you know, there, and, and and we were always out in the street playing rugby and football in the winter, and, and uh, cricket in the summer. You know, twenty aside on the green there with with a cork ball that would break your leg if it uh, <laughs> if it hit you so you never got out of LBW so um, and um, yeah and growing up in, in a Catholic family with uh, with the A-levelling guilt you know uh, and uh, the only I think the only school trips we used to go on were guilt trips and, uh, and, uh, and but it, 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 in that sort of type of uh, family but I always wanted to play rugby for Wales you know I was a ball boy for Cardiff in the 1970s when you had the likes of Gareth Edwards playing Gerald Davis and all those uh, Cardiff had a fabulous team, and I suppose I ended up going to. I did my A levels, and I ended up going to uh, South Glamorgan Institute, as it was then, the great Cardiff College of Education, now Cardiff Met. I ended up going there to, to, to train to be a PE teacher, not because I particularly wanted to be a PE teacher, but because it was the place where everyone went if you wanted to play rugby for Wales. You know, following mm-hmm. those great footsteps of of, of Gareth and, and and JG Williams and Roy Bouger and all those great players and uh so i ended up becoming a PE teacher almost by by accident really yeah and, and how, how good you know how good a player i mean i was a great player when i was younger the, the older i get the better i was um yeah, well, and, 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 one, yeah. <laughs> and johnny's the yeah. same i mean he, he, he when he moves so he still moves so well johnny Tudor does when he's dan- <laughs> he dances well, i can yeah. see him well, on the way i used to play rugby in school i was the smallest in the class I used to get flattened. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I was, um, I, I was, uh, I, I played for Glamorgan Wanderers as my first, but that was the first class club as it was in those days. You had 16 clubs that played in what was called the Whitbread Meditative, and they were designated as first class clubs. So they would, have, they would play each other in fixtures. So if you wanted to sort of get on in the game, you had to play for one of those 16 first class clubs. And in the, in, uh, of the 16, and they were like 
six or seven, your Cardiff, Newport, Lashley, Swansea, Neath, Ebervale, who were the, the, the bigger of the of the, the sixteen clubs. So the Wanderers was was a great club to play for, but it was you wouldn't play the top fixtures every week. You know, you'd, you'd end up playing all the top sides throughout the season, but not every week. And um, so I played for, for for the Wanderers, and I was a bit of an anomaly because I was a six foot three outside half, believe it or not. And in those days, yeah, I was an outside half. Yeah, I played my first three games in the first team for the Wanderers while I was still in youth at outside half and I went to college as an outside half. And and in those days, like we were brought up, this is the late 70s, we were brought up on your Barry Johns, five foot ten, Phil Bennett, five foot nine, and uh, all, all the great Cliff Morgan, all the, the Welsh great tens were were all all of us, you know, all, were the all sort of d- diminutive in yeah. stature. Uh, my hero, funny enough, was a guy called... Uh, Lescabura from France because he was six feet two as a fly half. So I thought, you know, and Jean Pierre Romer yeah. uh, of France, who was also six foot two. And I thought, well, if they can, you know, if they can do it, I can do it. But of course, in Wales, you were soon sort of. I went to college and I was soon moved to um, to fullback. Then I remember playing for the for outside half of the first team the one day in college, who also played all the first class clubs. We were playing South Wales Police, and I, I, I thought I'd done okay because I was I was a, sort of a, I had a big boot on me, so I was a kicking outside half. I used to kick goals as well. And, I dropped a goal and I thought I'd done all right. And um, anyway, Leighton Davis, Lord rest him, the legendary college coach, he dropped me from the first team from at outside half down to down to the thirds, not even the second, straight into the thirds to fullback. So not only was I changed position, but I was changed down two teams. And I went up to him afterwards, a very famous story. I went up to him afterwards. I said, excuse me, Mr. Davis, um, I want to know what, why am I in the thirds? And, and he looked at me, he said, Philip, because we haven't got a fourth. <laughs> <laughs> and it was then, but he said, and then he said to me, "Look, I think you're too tall to play fly half. You know, you need to you, you play football." And, I, and I, so I went to fullback, and, and I sort of uh, uh, that, that's where I sort of found my my game really, and because you had a mo- lot more space, and, and I, I was fairly quick, so I was a I was a, a pacifist, non-tackling fullback, <laughs> which <laughs> they used to call them attacking fullbacks in those days. So I was I was a, I was a running fullback, you know. So yeah. and I, I, I so I played four years in college, and I. I left the Wanderers when I left uh, college when I was 21 to go to Newport and I joined Newport and then I, I had 18 games, uh, 16 games for Newport and um, I, I got into the, the Wales B squad, which was like the, the stepping stone to the to the national side and then had two two bad years of injuries. I had a groin injury and then I had a knee injury playing against the Wanderers in the eighth minute of injury time in 1984, the eighth minute of injury time, torn my knee ligaments and after that now, that was when I had my first bout of uh, clinical depression, and um, that really scuppered me as a player. I got back to physical fitness, but I never had the mental strength or the confidence—you'd call it—I suppose these days to yeah. to get back to that that level, you know. Because you know, all of your dreams, isn't it? all of your dreams? Eighth minute yeah. of extra time, all of your dreams yeah. go overnight. I mean, you know, we talk about mental, um, you know, well-being these days. Back then, was it just get on with it? Well, it was, uh, it, first of all, I didn't know what it was. I'd, I always thought depression was, you know, you're just a bit, bit down in the dumps. But I was psychotic. Mm-hmm. You know, there are a couple of types of psychotic depression. You can have even one where you hear uh, voices, you know, mm-hmm. which would be like the classic, often patients with uh, schizophrenia would hear that, voices, or you can have like hallucinations, or you can have distorted thoughts. And I had the one with distorted thoughts. You know, the classic the classic joke, um you know, doctor, I feel like a pair of curtains will pull yourself together. Doctor, I think I'm a, I keep thinking I'm a dog will 
get get on the couch. I'm not allowed on the couch. And all those jokes, right? Yeah. All the, all those. I understand where they come from mm-hmm. because I was having all these weird thoughts. You know, one of the thoughts I had, and I was engaged to be married to to, to Liz at the time. Then one of the thoughts I had, believe it or not, this these distorting thoughts was I was going to go be a Catholic priest. And I was thinking, I don't want to be a Catholic priest. I'm going to get married. Yeah, but you're going to be all these. It's like not having control of, the, of your head, you know, not having control yeah. of your thoughts. Yeah. Was it more um, like an yeah. anxiety? Was it, Phil? Well, like it, an ang- it, it, anxiety was part of it, John. Yeah, anxiety yeah. was very much part of it. And I understand where you get depression. You almost always get anxiety. Um, but it, it, but it was it was like the so yeah. So so the, the thoughts would would you'd be battling with the thoughts in your head for days on end, and that would make you more anxious and so on. And in the end. Mm. Um, Funny enough, when I had the thoughts of of, of uh, taking my own life, suicidal thoughts, um, they were almost like calming. You know, they were almost sort of and a way it, it out. Didn't come with anxiety. Yeah. They came yeah. as sort of most natural Relief. thing in the world to do. Um, luckily, I had a great, uh, you know, very loving family, and, and you know, my my fiance Liz was was very, very. She uh, stuck with you then. She supportive stuck. and yeah. It must have been that must have been hard for everybody else as well as for yourself and when you see that other people's suffering i suppose it's almost like a, a vicious circle as well isn't it yeah it is yeah because it's very difficult to to because my dad would say well what's the matter with you what 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 and i'd say dad i think i'm gonna i've got these thoughts i'm gonna preach well that's not you're not going to be a that's not gonna happen so it's it's like a screen between those people who have who are going through what they're going through and those people who are trying to help you know mm-hmm. and the only way really you can get an insight into it is I think to have had it yourself, you know, yeah. you can learn all the theory about it, but that yeah, actual yeah. feeling of, of what you were. And then, um, so that, 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 that psychotic depression lasted for a few months. And of course, then my mum was very old school, sort of, uh, she was quite, my mum down to 39 when I was born. So uh, they, they were quite old school. And the thing was to, um, you know, you're the Newport fullback, you're a PE teacher, you don't need, you don't need see a psychiatrist or take these tablets you know so yeah. it's like get out of it yourself yeah. Yeah. yeah so stupidly i didn't take medication I, I i just lived with the condition it did it got better over the, the next few months but then for years for years after i was left with uh, as john says there uh, okay. anxiety terrible ter- terrible anxiety and i'm talking about now and john i'm talking about um going out to play for newport against Ebervale in front of a crowd of about 7,000 and five minutes before the kickoff, just having a massive anxiety attack in the in the change rooms because uh, there was no windows in the change rooms. And um, I had a claustrophobia attack, you know. Mm-hmm. And in those days, you didn't warm up on the field. You warmed up by doing, like, running on the spot and yeah. shouting and swearing and <laughs> hitting each other and, you know, getting all wound up in the change rooms. And I'm just doing all this, going through all these motions and thinking, I just want to break down crying now. Because I just mm. want that door to open, and then running out to play. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and goal kicking. Goal kicking was another thing. If I was the designated goal kicker on the day, if play went down towards the twenty-two, I could feel my heart and tummy sort of starting to butterflies starting to come because I knew I'd be saying to myself, "Referee, please don't give a penalty away to us now," because mm. I know that I'm going to go have to kick it, you know. And and then he would give a penalty, and the captain would say, "Do you fancy it, Steely?" And I'd say, "Yeah, come on." And I dig, dig my like your tea out of the ground as you did in those days and then um, I'd be looking at the post and thinking I could almost see the post shrinking in front of me and, and thinking there's no way you're going to kick this but please God yeah. let it go high and long so the people watching from the sideline can think it was a good <laughs> kick and if I did kick it it would be um, the, the voices then would be in the head sort of saying thoughts in heaven saying you lucky so and so you're not going to get the next one you know yeah, yeah that's anxiety like, like the rest, 
yeah, I played the rest of my rugby career like that, really, which is probably why I didn't get very <laughs> Did you? Yeah. So did it when you when you finished playing rugby? Did it did it ease at all, or did it transfer into your other life? You know, family life yeah. and and school life as a teacher. Yeah, it it, it didn't really. So then the anxiety would be uh, to, to do with my family. You know, I can remember going to to, to open the batting for Wemfo. I played cricket for Wemfo, where John lives now. I can remember and. Uh, we were one car family in those days because Brian, he was, a, was only little, my daughter. So Liz would drive me down to, to, to Wembo and then she'd have the car for the afternoon and then she'd come and pick me up or I'd get a lift home back to my house in Tafsal. And I can remember opening, opening the batting for Wembo and, and, and here in the, uh, the, the ground is quite near the Barry Road, which is quite busy, obviously, in the summer. And I heard the sound of a siren, you know, coming along the Barry Road. And I'm there batting. And all I can think about is not what shot I'm going to play this ball, but that 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 ambulance is the sound of an that that blue light and that siren is the sound of an ambulance. Liz and Brian have obviously had an accident, you mm-hmm. know, and, and and trying to trying to play in innings, you know. Yeah. So it, it spilled over to that, yeah. um, and then I had two two further quite severe bouts of depression. And the third one in nineteen ninety seven, and that's when I started to take. After that, I saw the GP, and I started to take. Um, a drug called paroxetine, which I still take a small bit of now, and that sort of seemed to improve me, keep me level. Someone told me it's not a yeah. character defect, it's a chemical defect. Um, yeah. Chemical defect, yeah, that's why. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, my uncle had um, bipolar, and, and he'd be like, one minute he'd be up in the air, the next minute he'd be on the floor, and but he didn't take medication, and when he... But then when they put him on the medication, it sorted him out. Mm. And that was a chemical imbalance in the yeah, brain. Yeah. So that's yeah. an amazing start. So you, you're a teacher at this stage, married to Liz, got Bryony and everything. Uh, were you singing all the way through? <laughs> Not singing all the way through it, well, no. the pitch. But were you no. always a singer and a, and a songwriter at that time? Well, yeah. Well, what happened was, um, in, it's something you could either do, like being a speaker, an afternoon speaker, uh, a performer, if you like. I think it's something you can either do or you can't to a degree. Now, when we were playing rugby for the Wanderers Youth, I, um, if there was a sing-song afterwards, I would always lead it. You know, they'd say, come on, Phil. And, and the daft thing was that the, the skill I had, if it's a skill or a talent, I could remember words to songs. I don't know, I could listen to them two or three times and I would do like, things like a Roundstone Cowboy, Snoop John B, uh, Country Roads Take Me Home, Sweet Caroline, all the old the old uh, uh, Tom Paxton's "The Last Thing on My Mind," all the classic rugby songs that you'd sing, and um, I just could remember them, you know, just could remember. Oh. Them. And then when I went when I went to college, if you had a sing song like you would after every match, um, it would come on. Phil, you lead the singing. So yeah. it sort of always started. And then I learned to pick up the guitar after I had the knee injury when I was twenty three. Because I always thought growing up, I also wouldn't it be I envy people who played the guitar, you know. Um, and it would be great now to get a guitar and have a, have a sing song. And that's why I sort of picked up the guitar and it, uh, and it sort of grew from there. My great regret is that I didn't learn the guitar like someone like you did, Mal, when, when you were really young, the golden age of skill learning seven to 11 and how much better I'd be now, you know? Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. So I always, always, um, and I used to guitar a lot when I, especially when I taught special needs pupils, like that was my most important bit of equipment was my, my guitar more so than my electronic whiteboard or my whiteboard or the computers or anything, you know? Yeah. Broadcasting then. Uh, how did it happen? And when did it sort of take over from teaching? Yeah, that's an interesting one. I finished playing rugby for Tafswell um, in 1992. I was a player coach then and uh, I finished at 30. And and um, the question you said earlier about 
did you miss it sort of when you finished playing? No, I was ready to retire. I kept playing by habit, really, because it was something I'd always done. And, you know, but I was quite happy to retire. Never missed the game at all, even, you know, even even in the just the year or two afterwards when I was still fit enough to play. Never, never missed it at all. So what happened then was um, I started doing, somebody asked me, would I do some rugby reports for uh, an age, a Middle Morgan press agency? I'd go around doing doing match reports on, on the Welsh uh, club scene, Premiership. And then um, Gareth Davis, who was head of sport, BBC Wales at the time, asked me, they, they just made, the, they, there were 16 teams in the Premier Division, so they had eight games on a Saturday to cover. And uh, he said, look, would you like to come along and, and just be one of our freelance reporters? Because we've got eight games, we haven't got enough staff. And that's how I started. My first game was uh, Newbridge against Newport in 1995. Uh, just after the game, just when the game had gone professional, and that and that's how it started. Were you a natural? Then, were, were you just like you know, a duck to water? Because obviously, you, <laughs> anybody listening to this will notice that you you talk a lot, Phil. You talk. Were you yeah, a natural yeah. at the time? Yeah. Well, I, I I I think I had I think I had something to say about the game, and I think I had something different to say. You know, I tr- tried not to go into all the the journalese, like uh, so-and-so, uh, Archie Smith bagged a try or grabbed a try. You know, I thought I'd, I'd just try and put a little bit of a different slant on it, which I was to do as well years later with um, with, with with the pitch side stuff. But it, it just sort of grew. The best thing I ever did, I had a phone call. After I'd done about five matches, I had a phone call from Rob Thomas. They used to phone me in school to tell me which game I was going to do. And he said, do you know anything about football? And I said, well, I played for the Cubs, I said. <laughs> <laughs> and I played for the Sunday League. I said, why? He said, well, we, we need somebody to go report tomorrow on Swansea City against Rotherham at the Vetch. This is about 19, yeah, 1995, this would be. So I turn up at the at Vetch. Now, in those days, at the Vetch, they had this big gantry overlooking the North Bank. Now, you probably remember. Oh, yeah, I remember it very well. You, up the ladder. You had, to cl- you had to climb up the ladder. You had to drop a rope down from the, this 20-foot ladder. Then you had to climb down the ladder again. You had to tie your equipment to the rope climb back up the ladder and then put your equipment up on it. It was the most, I'm sure, I don't know how health and safety. That's yet. like doing the Swansea Dockers, that is, Mel, getting our gear up. <laughs> the stairs, yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> anyway, so I, I did this game of football. I can, I can remember it now. I can remember saying, I can, getting it all wrong. I remember saying that uh, Keith Walker had, uh, just had a shot from 30 metres. Well, I don't say metres in football. That was one of the first things. Anyway, it's, it's yards. Yes. And then, but, but what happened was, it was a dreadful game. It was an awful game. It was like November time, it was, and it was nil-nil. And Chris Stewart, who was the, the presenter, said to me, um, uh, let's go back to the Vetch. Uh, is it still nil-nil? And I said, it's, it's, it's very nil-nil, Chris. He said, it's very nil-nil. <laughs> and then I said, and there's 22 cans of paint, the old gag, you know, there's 22 cans of paint in the stand watching the players dry. Yeah. <laughs> and they seemed to like it. Radio Wales seemed to like it. And then I got a phone call from BBC Radio Devon. Yeah. We've been given your name as a football commentator. <laughs> <laughs> Can you get to Ninian Park to do Cardiff City against uh, Exeter City in the the Freight Rover, whatever it was, windscreen wiper <laughs> trophy, you know? And, and I did lots of football then for, um, for like local radio stations around the country. Yeah. And then in well in 1997, I think they, they they cut the Premiership rugby down to eight teams, and I did mostly football that season. Mostly football. I was doing like Carnarvon against uh, Aberystwyth, mm. 
um, Newtown against Kyle Seuss, you know. Yeah. But what I always say to people, it wasn't what I would have done by choice, but it kept me on the air and it, it, you learn your craft. And, yeah. and what, what it taught me was that for that 30 seconds that your voice comes out of the, the, the box, the radio, doesn't matter what game you're doing, you're coming out of the same box as Terry Wogan. <laughs> and for that 30 seconds, you are... Yeah. You are the voice of Radio Wales. And I sort of always tried to look at it like that. So it, it didn't matter what the game was. I'd always try and sort of treat it as if it was a, you know, a, a big game. And, yeah. Yeah. and and sort of for that 30 seconds, try and make my sort of what I, my contribution would stand out a little bit, you know. How, how did you, did you finish teaching altogether and move into broadcasting? Was that a difficult decision when those, those, you know, opportunities arise? Well, 2001, uh, I've done, I've done a, um, you might remember, because you, you appeared on it the one day, uh, that's the first time I met you. During the World Cup in uh, 99, Radio Wales had a programme called the World Cup Experience. Do you remember that? Yeah, I do. Yeah, from, from Slurping Toad Pub. In Cardiff, yeah. The old library in Cardiff. Yes. And uh, I had this uh, thing from Rob Thomas. It, two years earlier, I'd done a song every morning on the back page programme, which was a sporting um Program presented by Eddie Butler, but and, and I, they asked me would I do a, a topical song, and if I can write things, I, I wish I could write some of the stuff you know that you've written and Frank Hennessy has written and all that. But I don't seem to have it in me to write those sort of like songs with depth. But what I have got is a sense of humour, and I can write short shelf life stuff. So I bought myself a rhyming dictionary. I did thirty-two weeks on this writing a, a song on the back page for Eddie Butler, but that was recorded. I go in and record it after mm. school on Friday, so that was fine. If you needed to retake. This World Cup experience was uh, was live, and I wrote the, fir- the Thursday before the R- Rugby World Cup kicked off. I did a live song in the, in the Sturbing Toad, and I called it um, uh, Hooray King Henry, You're Our Man. It was all about Graham Henry and a couple of humorous verses and a nice chorus, and there was a choir in the audience that night, and they all joined in. And, and uh, Radio Wales quite liked it, so they said, we'd like you to do, um, we'd like you to do four songs a week. <laughs> Four songs a week. Two on a Friday, two on a Monday to, to look ahead to what's happening on the weekend and then yeah, reflecting on a Monday, back. What, what's what, what's gone on the weekend, you know. So again, as a freelancer, you say yes mm. and then you panic, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> you, know, you know, Always you say know, yes. You both know the uh, yeah. Yeah. always take, take the gig. I'll take that gig, yeah. take so and so, yeah, and then and then you, you panic afterwards. Um so, uh, so I, I, I did. I was teaching full time. So I, I do my and I, I, so every spare minute in school, I'd be out with the, the rhyming dictionary trying to. And I don't read music, so if I came up with a tune, I'd have to record it. And and I soon realised that even if you come up with the tune at three in the morning, you've got to put it down because it would be gone in the morning. Yes. The tune would be gone. Yeah. Well, for me, it would be. And there was a great incident. The one I'd written a song called. Um, I'd written a song called. Uh, Jenks, the greatest scorer in rugby history. About it was to the tune of uh, Lily Marley. Jenks, the greatest scorer in rugby history. You know, it's that that sort of tune, and um, that was great because they played they played Samoa and Wales were expected to beat Samoa, and uh, Jenks would score, kick the points to become to break Mike Michael Liner's record. So that happened. Jenks kicked the conversion. So I had this other song ready to go, all about Wales has got through to the quarterfinals. Of course, they lost to Samoa. Mm. You might remember it. I, do. I was at the game. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We lost to Samoa. There were two interceptions. And I, so I, I've got to go now. It'd be okay for you, Mal, because you, you write music. You could scribble it down. 
write a couple of staves or whatever and put a few notes and so in between getting from the the millennium stadium at the the uh the millennium stadium to the slurping toad through all the crowd by six o'clock i've got to come up with another tune so i came up with this blues tune called um the interception blues don't you throw one all you lose you know, that, that sort of thing so i got away with it but it, it yeah it nearly it nearly creased me but as a result of that radio wells gave me a sunday chat show called phil Steele's big easy and it was an inconsequential chat show. It came after Dowie Griffiths' program, the great Dowie Griffiths, uh, String of Pearls. And as you remember, Mal, Dowie Griffiths used to get massive oh, figures. Enormous, yeah. So I was coming on the back of that. And of course, nothing to do with anything that I was doing, but uh, I, I, I'd inherit the audience, you know. So yeah. we, were getting, we were getting sort of massive figures. And um, so really was gave me that chat show. It lasted for a, for a, it was recorded for the first six weeks and then they wanted me to go live because it was, the figures were good. So I did that for nearly a year and that's when I decided that I'd go part-time in school. So I went part-time from 2001 to three days a week. And what happens then, of course, when you're, when you're part-time, you're more available for work, so more work sort of came in. Mm. And it came to a head then in around about 2006, 2007, where this was my week. I did Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday in school in yeah. Astrid Manach, in Lewis Girls School in Astrid Manach, teaching the special needs, learning difficulties children. On the Wednesday, straight from school, I drove to Gatwick Airport to take an over to take a flight uh, overnight flight to Qatar to speak at Qatar Rugby Club in Doha on the Thursday. Right, took the midnight flight back to uh, to Gatwick. Got got in about eight o'clock in the morning. Drove to uh, this is Friday lunchtime. I, I drove to um, Cumbran to speak at uh, a cricket lunch with Robin Smith, the All England cricketer. Then I drove from there Friday evening to Nailsea and Backwell in Western Supermare to do a dinner there. Then I came home. I did a match for Radio Wales on the Saturday afternoon. Then I drove down to uh, Hampshire to do a dinner for a club called Kings Clear in Hampshire. Came back on, uh, on the Sunday morning and I did some voicing for Scrum Five in the afternoon. I was still Going back, and I was back in school, school on Monday. Monday. Wow. And I said, and I said to, to Liz, my wife, I said, this is going to kill me, love. And she said, well, give up teaching. Yeah, and right. so in 2008, I, I sort of, I went full time as a, as a freelancer. I, I, I was 47. Wow. So I was wow. one of those uh, 25 years of hard graft, overnight successes. Yeah. I mean, you know what? You, when you were saying about writing songs, who was the songwriter that said, what comes first, the lyric or the tune? He said, the phone call. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I forget who said that. It was one of the famous yeah. songwriters. Yeah. I think it was Sammy yeah. Khan on the... On the Sammy the, Khan, that's yeah, what it was. On yes, the Sammy Michael Khan. Parkinson show. I've, I always think yeah. about him. You know, um, so, Johnny, Phil and I have known each other for quite a long time. And yeah. we, I remember the time when he said, will you pray for my wife, uh, Liz? Because yeah. she wasn't very well. And uh, yeah. and sadly, you lost Liz. She was a beautiful lady. I I have no idea what she saw in you. Um, she was yeah. a lovely lady, and uh, that must have been, you know, heart. Well, obviously, heartbreaking. Yeah. Um, how did that affect? You talked about yeah. mental health. How did that affect? Yeah. You. I mean, the whole That's thing the, must that, have been that, 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 horrendous. That is the weird thing. In fact, I, I remember the first person I saw when I turned up in the funeral car, Mal, at St. Tylo's Roman Catholic Church to. Uh, Liz's funeral. You were the first person I saw. Mm -hmm. You had your cap on, mm -hmm. your grey uh, overcoat, and you had your grey grey cap on. And uh, you were the first person I saw. And I remember thinking, "Wow, this is going to be a, a big turn up." How did that affect me? Well, the thing was, it was so quick. 
it was uh, she had a hike gone off to cover the Wales game against Canada in May 2009. And when I left, Liz had a headache and was feeling a bit sick. And um, but Liz said, just go, go, go off to the game. Well, I was only gone three days to Canada. Came back and she was no better. We took her to two out of ours doctors and um, they both said, oh, it sounds, it sounds like a migraine, you know. And mm-hmm. anyway, I took her back to the GP then because I, I knew something was up. And the GP said, uh, uh, go up to the, uh, take this letter up to Royal Camorgan Hospital and he said, and see what they say. So she had all the tests done and then she stayed overnight and they said, we'll keep it in overnight. We'll do a, a, a scan, brain scan. And I had a phone call about 10.30 the next morning to say that the consultant would like to see you. And I went in and they said, it's a it's a large tumour in the frontal lobe. Um, but he said, and this is the this is the weird thing about like depression, what have you. If you'd have said that to me all those years before when I was really bad with anxiety, I would have said, well, oh, this is it. This is the end of my life, you know, and I'd have been, you know, you'd have had to put me in the box with Liz if, if you'd have told me that, that she was going to pass away. But he said that parts of the appearance of the tumour suggest that it can be, it might be benign and they might be able to remove it. So we'll send you to the east. Well, as soon as I heard benign, I was like the strongest I've ever been here. I thought, right, we'll we'll deal with. I was the most logical, you know. Mm-hmm. I was well then, but I'd been well for, for for quite a few years. But I thought, you know, we can we can deal with this. It could be benign. We'll say this benign until we know differently. Obviously, of course, um, it turned out that it was a secondary tumor, and 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 Liz died within uh, thirty five days, June fifth. Wow. Diagnosed July the tenth. Died at the age of forty eight. Um, no, if you again, if you'd have told me uh, all those years later that by the time you're 48, your wife will, will die in six weeks, I would have. I would again, I would have said, well, like I don't know what I'll do. You might as well take me as well. And yet, I was like the strongest and the most confident and the most together person I'd I'd ever been. It was strange. Oh. At a funeral, I you remember a funeral, Mal, they could hardly get the coffin down the aisle, you know. And there were there was Liz wasn't a Catholic, but there were seven Catholic priests who did the service. Frank Hennessy and Dave Burns sang. And I was, it was a weird feeling. I was like the proudest, one of the, I was one of the more proudest of my my days of my life to think that all these people here have turned out to see, to, to, to pay respects to, 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 to my wife, you know, and that is my wife there. That mm. it, it was a really sort of, I wouldn't say bittersweet feeling, it was a very proud feeling mm. that I had. So yeah. really the, um, the depression, I had normal grief and everything. I had, you know, tears and, and, and normal grief and, and missing Liz and everything, but I never had about a depression after it. Yeah, amazing. It made you stronger in a way, then? Yeah, yeah, I think so, John. I, I Obviously, I went up a little bit on my medication, just as like oh. a preemptor, just to sort of head it off at the past type of thing, but in terms of, um, you know, having uh, depression or whatever, I, I, I didn't, which is, oh. it, it doesn't make sense, really, does it? It's funny how maybe life prepares you for future events anyway you've 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 come through it um not forgetting liz of course um and you've got a lovely daughter brightney who who i've met as well yeah. and she's doing you proud obviously takes after yeah, her mum rather than you she's a solicitor exactly in, uh, in, in winchester she's a big billy joel fan right? oh massive billy joel fan. Well, there we are a woman of great taste um you want to see that guy we saw then oh elio pace uh, which yeah, is, elio, I, I was there oh, elio pace yeah hey, what, a, what a show what a show oh, fabulous before yeah. you go you got to explain to me the the, the scrum rules because you know, <laughs> i'm baffled with the scrum rules 
Um, th- that makes two of us. <laughs> <laughs> they change him every five minutes. Oh gosh, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, is he pulling him down? Is he falling down? Um, yeah. You know, you've 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 come through all that. You've you've do- still don't understand the scrum rules, but you're still commentating. Yeah, you've been on Scrum Five. You're doing different things. Life keeps on changing. You found happiness again, Phil. I did. Yeah, I was very lucky. Um, and this was, uh, I, I wouldn't say I'm a, I, I know you're, you're quite religious, Mal. I, I wouldn't say I'm a Catholic these days. I, I, you know, I, I don't, don't go to mass. I don't practice the, the Catholic faith and the discipline of it, but I've still got, I've still definitely got a belief that, uh, that there's something, you know, mm-hmm. and, and I, I, and I sort of would say a Christian prayer because that's my, my sort of background. Um, and I definitely believe that, uh, how I met Kate is, uh, somebody up there is, uh, is looking after me because this happened um, Christmas 2011, and uh, the way it happened was uh, uh, I was in town with with an old college mate of mine for a Christmas drink, and uh, we'd gone into this bar in town, and I'd seen this girl with blonde hair, and I'd seen this girl with a smile that I'd never seen before, this wonderful smile. And my mate said, "Come on," he said, uh, "Let's go and have a class pie and chips." He said, "I'm starving," <laughs> so we went into class and just Kate, and then he said to me. He said, I tell you what, let's go back in that bar and have one more. He said, because I don't want to go. He was getting divorced. I don't want to go back to my flat down the bay Christmas time on my own. So I said, I'll have another one. Anyway, he went back into the bar. The girl with blonde hair comes running up to me. She says, oh, Phil, Phil, lovely to see you. And uh, I didn't, didn't recognise it at first. I thought she was like a scrum five. Watcher, yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. And um, she said, uh, oh, she said, you don't remember me. My name's Helen. She said, I'm big friends with Vicky. Now, Vicky is Helen's friend was big friends with the daughter of Liz's best friend from work, a right. lady called Suzanne. And in fact, when this Vicky got married, this Helen was on our table. And then she told me that story and it started to come back to me. And I said to her, who is your friend there? Does she ever stop smiling? <laughs> and she said, that's Kate, come and meet her. Well, this is this is absolutely true, Mal. It's in my book. This is absolutely, And I wouldn't recommend this as a chat up line, but it worked for me. Right? We were there and I said to her, Kate, where are you from? And she said, uh, I live in Pencoy, but I'm from Pembrokeshire. And I said to her straight up, I said, I know Pembrokeshire so well. I said, the ashes of my late wife are scattered at the point <laughs> in Little Haven. Right? That was my absolute words. That was my absolute words. Just because you know what I'm yeah. like, Mal, I'm very honest and open. And anyway, th- then um, th- then I, I invited her to go to, uh, to uh, uh, do two days later, a Christmas do in Laliston. My great friend, Kevin Hopkins, who's a former Whites captain, former Wales Centre, and his, and his wife, Gail, were putting on a, a do in the Great House in Laliston for all their friends in Laliston. And they'd asked me a couple of weeks before, would I speak? And I said, yeah, I'll see. I'll get up and do 20 minutes. I said, and um, I said, uh, I'll bring the guitar. And I said, I'll do a Christmas song. So when I asked Kate to, uh, when I phoned her to ask that she want to come out to that do, I said to her, there's only two things uh, you need to uh, know, Kate. She said, what are they? I said, well, it won't be just us to, to, to do. I said, there'll be some other people. And she said, how many? And I said, 48. <laughs> 48 on the first day. And then she said, and what's the other thing I should be worried about? And I said, well, at the end of the dinner, you'll see me pick up, uh, you'll see me get up from the table, speak for 20 minutes, and then pick up my guitar and sing A Fairy Tale in New York. And Kate said, Oh, that's my favourite Christmas song, and and that was that was, and I knew within it. about a fortnight that, that I'd be marrying Kate. Isn't that she, she married me. We're nearly so, we're nearly out of time. Um, it's been a real. Who's going to win on Saturday? Who's going to win? 
I, well, it's a good question. That John, I, I, Wales are not favourites by any means. They picked the side that they had a couple of changes. John John Davis is in the centre, and they picked Seb Davis at the blind side, and Josh Navidi straight back in. Oh, and I, I could see a way that Wales could win, but I don't think they will. I mean, if they get off to a good start, Dan Bigger kicks a few penalties, the crowd gets behind them, and France make a few errors. Um, Wales could win, but I don't think they will. I think this French side is as good as They're French side. And, and Anton Dupont is one of the, I think, we'll, we look back and tell our grandchildren about him, you know, one of the all-time greats. So I, I fear that it'll be France by uh, 10 to 15. Right. Um, Fingers right. crossed they play like they did last, the second half last That's night. right, yeah. That's, <laughs> the that's great. Um, you mentioned your book. How, how do people get hold of your book, Phil? Uh, it's, it's available uh, from the publishers, St. David's Press. Uh, and it's also uh, available on Amazon. It's uh, Nerves of Steel. Yeah, it's about my, my life story. My next book is going to be all about um, re- reverse psychology. So don't buy it. <laughs> Lovely. I love it. <laughs> uh, it's, uh, Johnny, I think on behalf of both of us, it's been one of the most fascinating uh, podcasts we've done. I know yeah, we, ha- yeah. we haven't actually said very much me and you, Johnny, this time. But um, well, no, it's interesting listening to Phil. Lovely listening to Phil. Yeah. Phil, you, you know how much I think about you? Oh, um... Yeah, you're good, good man. Uh, so it's goodbye from um, it's goodbye from Phil. It's goodbye from Johnny, and it's goodbye from me. Goodbye, everybody. Goodbye.